0: making sense of the world on a weekly basis. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and we are keeping our spirits high here in a changing world. And interestingly, this trade newspaper, you know, our focus, our bread and butter, as I like to say, are these commodities, these metals, and they are right at the heart of what's going on here. I mean, I'm looking at headlines from CNBC, how the... German finance minister is saying, you know, we're not going to be, we're not going to be blackmailed by the Russians to pay for our energy in rubles. I, let me get this headline. Yeah, and I just thought this spoke volumes. Putin should think about the consequences of asking for energy payments in rubles. Germany says, and this is the finance minister Christian Lindner who told CNBC this on Monday. And I'm sure Putin's just thinking to himself, like, Germany should think of the consequences of not paying in rubles. Like, part of the communication disconnect that I see happening here, part of it is this disconnect between the financialized economy and what I'm tempted to call the real economy, real things, not the pieces of paper. And what this war, this invasion, however you want to term it, and maybe invasion is the right word because that's what it is, this invasion seems to be highlighting this tension, which has been around for a long time, as any gold investor will know. I mean, a lot of people would argue the reason gold is still not doing that well is because of these paper machinations. Now, someone like Jeffrey Christian would say, well, this is conspiracy, but you do wonder. Okay, especially when you see, you know, Bitcoin doing so well, yet gold isn't doing so well. It does make you wonder. Uh, who knows? And I'm not out to, you know, again, Jeffrey Christian is one of the most knowledgeable people on these matters. We should actually get him interview, get an interview with him right away. But all to say, I see a bit of a face-off starting to happen. Coming up this episode, we have actually a bit of a YouTube star in the last year, Gareth Soloway probably one of the most uh you know at least in the what I'd call like the the gold crypto alternate media space on YouTube I'd consider him he's kind of one of the most well known having correctly predicted a lot of the movements say in gold and bitcoin in the last few months last year or so his people reached out and so I'm more than happy to have him on to me it's a uh, I'll try not to be starstruck by this technical analyst here. but So that's coming up. So that'll be a lot of fun. We also had a big event last week, the Northern Miner Speaker Series, where we had Ross Beattie, Chair of Equinox School, and Maggie Lehman. Maggie Lehman is VP Exploration of a Cisco Development, and I think that went quite well. That was March 24th, so that was last week. And coming up, we have another one, this time with Pierre Lassonde, On June 8th, 2022, register now. The last one sold out. And let me just see here. Okay, so it's limited to 100 delegates. And it will bring together professionals from across the industry to share knowledge, network, and discuss the future of mining. So this is in Toronto at One King West Hotel. And that is in 71 days. So the last one sold out. It's probably a chance to talk to Pierre Lassonde. Sure you know, mildly aggressive about it, or you get lucky, you could probably talk to Pierre Lassonde if you show up to that. And let me just see if, oh, and this includes the gourmet three-course lunch. Okay, so how do you go wrong with that? $85. Yeah, go to events.northernminer.com and look for Pierre Lassonde in the Mining Legends speaker series. And yeah, gourmet lunch. And Pierre Lassonde for 85 bucks can't go wrong in Toronto. So that is coming up. Other than that, I mean, there's so much to talk about. I mean, look at the 10-year bond. We're going to ask Gareth Solloway about this. I think we'll open with that. If you look at the 10-year bond, it's at 2.497%. So let's just round that up 0.003 to 2.5%. If we go to our notes, three weeks ago, it was at 1.85%. And now it's at 2.5%. If we do the math on that, the 10-year Treasury bond is up 0.65% in yield from 1.85%. So, I mean, I think we're talking in the neighborhood of a 40% move in three weeks in the 10-year bond. Now, this is also interesting because I think the official narrative, and which may be completely right, so the official narrative on this is that the bond market is finally getting the message on inflation, and that may actually totally be true, You know, just as an alternate narrative, you know, we had that big move with the sanctions about a month ago. So in the last three weeks, we've had a very big move in the bond market. While a month ago was about the time that the sanctions were announced, maybe even like three and a half weeks ago. And remember how they seized all the Russian assets? their reserves, and which were probably a lot in treasury bonds, and that's probably how they were able to do it. Again, I'm not super clear on the mechanics of sanctions and how you technically do that. But to me, the timing is quite interesting, isn't it? That all of a sudden, there's not the same demand for treasury bonds at 1.85%, and that all of a sudden, they have to give a little more now in the last three weeks, and it's been a dramatic move. Again, we're talking in the neighborhood of a 40% move higher in yields in three weeks. This is big. So just something to keep our eye on. So let's look at gold quickly as well. Gold is at, you know, not doing very well. And this is another hugely interesting narrative here. This crypto has taken off $47,550 for Bitcoin. Okay, so crypto, if I go to my CoinGecko here, I mean, Bitcoin's up 15% in the last week. Okay, so that's pretty significant. Probably a lot of that in the last two or three days. And we go to gold and not looking so great. It's at $1,920 per ounce, you know, so back below 2000. I would argue still quite strong. And this is, we're going to ask Gareth about this, but. I would argue this is still quite a strong number, and I have a feeling he's going to agree with that. You know, copper at four dollars and seventy-one cents is also a strong number. A palladium all over the place. And once again, like that is the that is the rodeo of metals. There, palladium two thousand two hundred sixty-four dollars. So shooting back down, as Jeffrey Christian says, a, a not a very liquid market. Oil one hundred six dollars for WTI and Brent at one hundred thirteen dollars. So, I'm starting to track all these metals, their charts here. And they basically look like they've come down, but they're keeping their uptrend. And we will discuss that in metal prices. So, with that, let's turn to our news stories. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer. Find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, Let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have more work stoppages, which come on the heels of last week's CP rail stoppage. This time, it's at the Las Bambas Copper Operation, one of the world's largest. And that is owned by MMG. And this is by Valentina Ruiz Leotode. Following a tense meeting with human resources personnel, the union that represents MMG's Las Bombas workers announced the launching of a protest action as they demand a review of the end-of-year profit amounts paid by the mining company to its employees. In a media statement, the union says that this is the first time that employees receive their share of the profits since the copper mine became fully operational in 2016. Las Bambas employs more than 6,000 people directly and indirectly. Quote, The company has been taking advantage of permissive benefits granted by the Peruvian state, thus hindering workers' participation in the profits for almost six years. Our employer has made this payment for the first time. However, the amounts paid do not meet our expectation. In the document, the union also points out workers' disappointment at the company's lack of recognition of their efforts and of the fact that they waited a long time to receive the benefit. They also expressed concern about whether their share of the profits had been reduced due to issues beyond their control, such as stoppages in the fiscal year 2021 and isolation measures due to COVID-19. Quote, we hope that the company better ponders the situation and gives us an immediate answer. And continuing on, Las Bambas is Peru's fourth largest copper mine and the world's ninth largest. It is located in the southern Apurimac region and has been at the center of protests and road blockades since it started operations in 2016. In addition to the workers' protests, on March 25th, the local Juanqueri community threatened with a new blockade following the government's approval of the Las Bambas expansion project. The Juanqueri said they would take all necessary legal and social measures to prevent the development of a second open-pit copper mine called Chalco Bamba. Overall, operations at Las Bambas have been disrupted for over 400 days since 2016, according to company estimates. And turning to our next story, another strike. Spanish transport strike halts Orvana's Orival operation. So you see there's strikes happening all over the place, and I saw other ones too in the news so it's all happening at once. This is by Henry Lazenby. I I assume it's inflation, right? Like people can't pay their bills. Cost of living. An ongoing transportation strike in Spain has accentuated supply chain disruptions that have forced Canadian miner Orvana Minerals to suspend operations at the critical Oravale copper gold operation in the country's north. In a news release Friday, the company said that the lack of timely supply of materials caused by a national strike of transportation services, prompted the temporary suspension of operations. Several Spanish truckers' unions commenced a nationwide strike on March 14th over rising fuel prices and working conditions. Reuters reported on Friday that truckers rejected a $1.1 billion support package to defuse the 12-day walkout that has caused sporadic goods shortages. Orvana said it was monitoring the situation affecting Spain on a nationwide basis and would provide further updates as material developments occur. Orvana intends to resume normal production at Oravale when transportation services restart. In the meantime, the company continues to investigate, quote, any and all options, end quote, at its disposal to restart operations. And so, yeah, an El Valle underground mine produced 47,414 ounces of gold and 6.3 million pounds of copper in 2021. And turning to our next story, this is another study that has come out that the mining sector needs to rebrand. I don't know if this is news, but BDO study shows that the mining sector needs to rebrand to attract Gen Z talent. This is by Naimul Karim. And so let's see what this study says. I mean, we've gone through this quite a few times here, but let's see what the latest study says. About 70% of Canadians born in the mid-1990s aren't interested in pursuing careers in the mining or oil and gas industries, reveals a new survey based on 148 Generation Z respondents from schools and universities. The global study by BDO, an accounting and business advisory group, also states that nearly half of the world's natural resource organizations find it difficult to attract and retain early career professionals with just one in five Canadians considering a career in the industry. You know, if one in five people are considering a career in natural resources, I don't think that's necessarily a terrible stat. Furthermore, the report notes that Canadian natural resource companies are behind their global counterparts in terms of prioritizing diversity and inclusion, with just 36% of Canadian companies having programs in place to attract a diverse workforce compared to 55% globally. Quote, the survey results show that there is both challenge and opportunity ahead for the attraction and retention of young talent within natural resources in Canada. Said Stephen Payne from Energy and Natural Resource Leaders at BDO Canada in a press release, quote, to bridge the talent gap, natural resource organizations will need to not only align more closely with ESG and sustainability objectives, but also develop an achievable roadmap that extends beyond compliance. Canadian mining industry is experiencing a labor shortage. Job vacancy rates in the mining, quarrying, and oil and gas sector in the fourth quarter last year witnessed a 1.7 increase on a year-on-year basis, representing more than 7,500 open positions. According to Statistics Canada, according to the non-profit Mining Industry Human Resources Council, there will be a gap of roughly 80 to 120,000 mining workers by 2030, forcing companies to deal with, quote, replacement demand, even as they need to fill net new positions. Ryan Montpellier, executive director, described the BDO survey as, quote, accurate and said the industry had its hands full in trying to establish itself as an employer of choice. Quote, we did some polling with youth in Canada and we asked students about their interest and willingness to work in a number of different sectors. Only 11% of 2000 youth indicated that they would work in the mining sector in Canada, Montpellier told the Northern Miner. You know, I'm not sold that we need to make too much of this. I think a lot of people who currently work in the resource industry, when they were students, probably would have said the same thing unless they were the rare soul that was just, you know, really wanting to do geology and do mining from a young age. But there really aren't that many people that do that. I mean, once people have mortgages to pay, they start to you know, put a little water in their wine in terms of where they will and won't work. But interesting nonetheless. So, yeah, so there definitely is a branding issue. It's not attractive, let's just put it that way, to Gen Z talent right now. And so BDO's study is simply confirming that. Continuing on, Stellantis and LG Energy to invest $5 billion in EV battery plant in Windsor. So this is interesting. This by Naimul Karim also Stellantis NV and LG Energy Solution will invest over $5 billion to build a large battery plant in Windsor, Ontario, with an expected annual production capacity of over 45 gigawatt-hours to produce lithium-ion battery cells. Construction of the plant, which is expected to create 2,500 jobs, will begin later this year, and the facility will be operational by 2025, Canada's Ministry of Industry said in a press release. That's pretty fast. The federal government's investment in the project is still being discussed, a ministry spokesperson said. we are seeing the largest investment in Canada's auto sector. François-Philippe Champagne, Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, said in a release... We will continue to attract other companies and encourage them to set up shop in Canada to help create jobs, generate economic benefits, and contribute to a net-zero emission future. Experts have urged the Canadian government to invest more to create a strong battery supply chain as demand for electric vehicles have increased, with the world looking to meet its net-zero goals by 2050. In early March, the Mining Association of Canada, which includes about 50 of the country's leading mining companies, urged the government to invest more in critical minerals required to make EV batteries ahead of the national budget to avoid, quote, slipping behind its competitors in the sector. And we have a quote from Patricia Moore, who is an economist. She used to be with Scotiabank and is now independent analyst and founder of the publication Critical Metals for a Sustainable World. And... She's quite positive on the development. Quote, there are many battery plants that produce about 25 gigawatt hours, but the one at Windsor is 45, and that's a large plant. This is a very important step. And then we have a quote from CEO of Stellantis, which was created last year by a merger of Fiat, Chrysler, Automobiles, and France's Peugeot. And the CEO's name is Carlos Tavares and he says, quote, our joint venture with LG Energy Solutions is yet another stepping stone to achieve our aggressive electrification roadmap in the region, aimed at hitting 50% of battery electric vehicle sales in the U.S. and Canada by the end of the decade. And even Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said in a press release that, quote, partnerships like these were critical to creating new jobs and putting Canada on the cutting edge of the clean economy. Well, I'm glad it's on the radar. It seems like moves in the right direction and continuing on another Canadian EV battery market story, Valet Canada to supply low carbon nickel for EV market. It's by Alicia Hyatt, our new editor in chief. Ballet has struck a multi-year agreement to supply Swedish lithium-ion battery manufacturer Northvolt AB with low-carbon nickel from its Long Harbor refinery in Newfoundland. Yeah, low-carbon nickel. I have a feeling we're going to start seeing this more and more. Low-carbon copper, low-carbon nickel... Details regarding volume and pricing were not released, but the multinational base metals miner said that the agreement had been two years in the making and would serve as a, quote, launch pad for further cooperation. And Deshni Naidu, Valet's executive VP of base metals, said, Quote, the supply agreement is another strategic milestone as we pivot our business towards electric vehicle demand. We're excited to build a lasting relationship with Northvolt that raises the bar on sustainably sourced raw materials for this fast-growing sector. So, more deals in Canada on EVs and battery metals. And finally... We have a report, commodity prices spikes could signal lasting market changes by Henry Lazenby. And it says here, market analyst Wood Mackenzie warns that the ongoing metals and mined commodity price spikes combined with heightened geopolitical tension could result in long-lasting market changes. In recent months, factors including the Russia-Ukraine conflict, stimulated economies, thriving post-pandemic demand and ongoing COVID constraints on logistics have put supply chains under immense stress triggering multiple price records for metals and mined commodities. Woodmax Vice President Robin Griffin said in a press note that drastic divergence of price and production cost could not last indefinitely, even if there were an enduring stranding of Russian production. And we have a quote. A look at notional margins miners enjoy suggests that the price rises are fragile at best, margins are way above historical norms and such a drastic divergence of price and production cost cannot last indefinitely the disruption to regional and product price relationships also points to price fragility for example asian steel prices remaining flat while iron ore and metallurgical coal prices continue to soar is incongruous given their influence on steel production costs said griffin according to wood the conflict will leave an indelible mark on some commodity markets Griffin continues, quote, a prolonged shift in some Russian trade from Europe to China and India and a lack of Western participation in the Russian metals and mining sector are near certainties. But even if we ignore for a moment the serious geopolitical impacts on trade, price shocks themselves will also engender potentially long-lasting change, which could include buyers taking a more conservative, risk-averse approach, which could entail a preference shift towards longer-term contracts with less spot trading. Some buyers are also expected to seriously consider vertical integration into supply chains once the uncertainty subsides, while government may move to increase regulation to manage volatility. So an interesting report from Henry Lazenby on how the structure of the commodity markets might change based on current volatility. And with that, those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to Metal Prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on March 29th, gold is trading at $1,911.88 per ounce. That is $13 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $24.64 per ounce. That is $0.44 cents lower than last week. And platinum is trading at $978.09 per ounce. That is $51 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,232.50 per ounce. That is $291 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading a penny higher at $4.66 per pound. Aluminum is trading $0.10 higher at $1.63 per pound. Lead is trading $0.04 higher at $1.06 per pound. And nickel is trading at $16.13 per pound. That is $0.71 lower than last week. And tin is $0.09 higher at $19.35 per pound. And cobalt is $0.37 higher at $37.40 per pound. And zinc is $0.10 higher at $1.85 per pound. And I think that is an all-time high for zinc here, at least in the last two and a half years since we've been tracking it. So zooming out, I would say we have a consolidation at higher levels, even for gold and silver. I mean, they are down and maybe a little disappointing to investors, but overall... You still have a 19 handle on gold, so that is still a good price. And same with silver at 24.64. This is not bad. It's not great, but not bad. And industrial metals are really just consolidating at higher and higher levels. With zinc really being the standout. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Gareth Soloway, chief market strategist at InTheMoneyStocks.com, and Gareth is a well-known figure on the YouTube financial media circuit, and he is one of the most popular technical analysts out there. So we are very happy to have him. And with that, I hope you enjoy the interview and I will see you on the other side. Today, I am very pleased to welcome Gareth Soloway, Chief Market Strategist at InTheMoneyStocks.com. And, you know, I was joking in the intro here, I didn't want to be starstruck by Gareth. I've been watching Gareth for what seems like a year and he's had this, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but he's had a bit of a meteoric rise here as a technical analyst on YouTube. So anyways, it's great to have you, Gareth. Uh, Welcome to the program.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me. And that's a very generous introduction. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's. I think it's great. It's just kind of hilarious. So, I mean, you're, again, known as a technical analyst. I, and, and stop me anywhere, or correct me if I'm wrong at any point. And I was kind of curious, because that seems to be your main focus. I guess, very quick first question. Is that your main focus?
1: Yes, it is. I mean, everything to do with charts. I'm a big believer that charts kind of tell us where the next move is coming even before the news sometimes which makes it remarkable so yes the charts the technical analysis type techniques that i use um, i've really made a career by using that to predict the next big move in the market or individual stocks or commodities
0: yeah and that really is kind of the promise of technical analysis is it almost sees the move of the markets before the news like i mean that's kind of like the hopeful promise of TA. So I just wanted to ask you where are we with technical analysis? Because of the internet and everyone, you know, there's uh, there's what I would call a speculative mania last year and I, maybe it's continued. Is it working better than ever when everybody is looking at their fibs and everybody is looking at technical analysis? Does it become a self-fulfilling prophecy at a certain point?
1: So technical analysis, it's important for everyone listening to understand that it's all about probabilities, right? So when you see a pattern that has repeated a thousand or a million times in history in various charts, if you look at that pattern, it basically represents the human emotion, right? So if you think about a chart, it's created by buyers and sellers. So someone buys, a chart goes up. Someone sells, a chart goes down. So what a chart is, is it's the representation of millions and millions of people and their emotional psyche. Are they greedy? Are they fearful? And that's why it's such a great representation and why it gives us that ability to predict because basically you know that if people get this way, if their emotion gets in, in control of them in this regard, the likely outcome is a move up or a move down. So, so going back to the question, it, it does work really, really well still. You have to understand as a technician that there are certain markets where you just have to step back on. So like for instance, When GameStop and uh, AMC were just catapulting to the upside, Tesla at one point uh, a year and a half ago, there were points where there was so much momentum that a resistance level wasn't going to hold in the near term. So there's extremes in the market where technical analysis doesn't work, but I would say 90% of the time it is amazing at how it can predict moves and the more participants in the market, the actual better. So we see a lot of smaller investors getting in the market since COVID hit, and that has really been a great thing for technical analysis because more participants mean a more general mass of emotion, which you can predict easier.
0: Yeah, so this is fascinating. And just on that topic of, so it's it's sort of a gauge and a measure of emotion, I guess, based on previous patterns that have been recognized in the past, I assume. And then based on these kind of movements, it it gets attributed to emotion. We then can say, okay, these are emotional patterns, mass psychological patterns uh, that we can use as a predictive tool.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's basically understanding that human emotion throughout history doesn't change. I mean, you could go back a thousand years and people were still greedy and they were still fearful. I mean, you go to something like the tulip mania in the 1600s, it was very similar to what we've seen in the dot-com bubble as well as the crypto bubble, where you know these, these tulips became so prized that literally the cost of it went to something like 40 times someone's salary back in that age just to buy one tulip bulb. Obviously, that crashed. It was a, it was one of the first big bubbles in history that we have to point at, although I'm sure there were others. But it, it's this human emotion of, of greed and fear that just continues to repeat. And the charts, by looking at them and seeing these patterns represented, you can get kind of an edge. You can get a probability of, of predicting the next move.
0: Thank you for explaining that because there are probably some people in this audience, maybe geology students, that may not be super familiar with this. Now, turning to the general markets i mean there's so much going on but i guess i'm interested in what stands out for you these days looking at the big picture for me it's bonds and this kind of huge move that we've seen in the 10-year bond in the last you know three weeks i mean it seems like a massive move what's catching your eye and what are you seeing big picture in the markets overall
1: yeah so so you're absolutely right i mean we've had a remarkable move in the 10-year uh it's starting to put kind of the 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 stall out on housing in the United States here because, you know, getting a loan is becoming so, so expensive. Home prices were already at record highs, you add in a, a higher mortgage payment because of higher rates, and it's really hurting that that housing market here in the short term. One thing to point out is that the yield has surged into a trend line. So if you were to connect the trend lines going back to like 1987, which there was a big crash in 87, it literally is a trend line. You can stretch out and, and connect to all the highs along that path. For, so in the 90s, in the early 2000s, in the 2010 to 2020 period, and you actually just hit it at 2.5% just a couple of days ago. So for me as a technician, I look at that and I say, okay. People are getting too overly zealous thinking yields are going to go up. The resistance level has now been hit. So you're going to probably see a pullback in the 10-year for at least a short amount of time. And and this is, again, using that predictive ability of charts to map out trend lines and pattern price and timing factors. But for me, it's absolutely amazing run considering where we were a couple years ago on the 10-year. But inflation, again, I mean, we haven't seen inflation like this for a long, long time. Yields have to ultimately go up, even with a pullback here, they probably need to go up even more
0: interesting. And so I was listening to Bill Gross on Bloomberg a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned something about like two point one percent as being his line in the sand as to where things would really change. For you, it sounds like maybe it's around that two point five percent area so so what is the area? like if where we see a significant trend shift, potentially, what, what would that area be for you?
1: Yeah, so for me, that that's where it is. That trend line going back to the 80s is, is such a big trend line, literally lasting for almost 40 years, that if we were to break above that in the 10 year, I think you see a monumental shift of psychology in investing, you know, where investors start to say, hey, listen, maybe I'm not going to pay X multiple for a Tesla position versus what I can get safely in the bond market at this point and i also think it kind of creates a, a more scary scenario for us as americans where you know if if yields continue to go up what's that telling us it's telling us that that inflation is not being taken back down and that it may be a more systemic issue which brings up a whole new classification of hardships for people out there whether it's food prices or energy or just you know various goods that we buy on a regular basis so so definitely i think that that's something you want to watch. Uh, the stock market recently has had a big bounce. I think it's partially because the stock market is seeing the two point five level and saying, "Okay, maybe we're at resistance. Maybe yields won't go through that." But again, for me, knowing the Fed, I mean, and this is getting into another topic, but the Fed has always printed us out of every recession uh, since basically the the nineties two thousands because the inflation was two percent or sub. With eight or ten percent inflation. It makes it very hard for the the water faucet, the spigot of printing of money to be turned on again, because, I mean, how high can inflation go? How high do they want to push it before the middle income and the lower income populations really suffer even more so?
0: Yeah, the implications seem massive, really, if something like that were to break. And then there's also the debt. I mean, what I also notice is people don't bring up the debt that much when they're talking about their seven or eight rate hikes. And again, this kind of goes beyond technical analysis, but you know, this debt is massive and I suppose previous debt that stays the same, but any debt that's rolled over or any new debt, I guess, deficits, which we know are huge, yep. you know, again, like uh, 3% 10 year bond, it, it, like the uh, more massive implications.
1: It's it's a, the implication is absolutely huge and and again the US at this point doesn't bring in enough revenue to cover it you know na- namely it it doesn't have a, a balanced budget so it has to continually buy money or get money and borrow money so the creation of that means that if interest rates go up the payments on those debts will go higher as well and it's going to be a spiral it's essentially a snowball rolling down the mountain where at some point it can actually cause the government to go bankrupt as well. So, I mean, there are so many massive issues coming up that now cannot be easily fixed with inflation as high as it is, that again, whether it's the government or whether it's the Federal Reserve, they can't go about doing what they do. So, you're going to hear more and more about, and, and this will be inevitable, You know, no one likes tax hikes, but that will inevitably be one avenue we have to go down as a, as a population, because The government has to figure out a way, either cut spending or raise revenue or a little bit of both, which is what I would think would would be the smart decision to kind of get us out of this situation.
0: Okay, excellent. So before we get to the metals, I want your quick take then just on the stock market and, you know, maybe the S&P and the NASDAQ and maybe the crypto markets, too, because we saw a bit of a divergence there with crypto uh, last few days, which I thought was quite fascinating you know, you've actually been quite prescient on the whole crypto side of things and frankly, the stock market too. I'm just curious if you have any kind of big picture thoughts on where we are in the market and all of these markets.
1: Yeah, I generally am bearish on the market, uh, the stock market mainly. I'm bearish short term on crypto, even the long term, I'm very, very bullish on cryptocurrency. I think there is a place in our society for a currency or a store of safety where it can't be endlessly printed. So Bitcoin has that side to it, where it can only have 21 million coins ever mined. So longer term, I love that. What I don't like is that if the Fed really is at a point where they can't print anymore, then you're in a situation where there's going to be a great unwind, right? So if you look at the market since 2009, when we came out of the Great Recession, there was QE1, QE2, QE2.5, and and then all the way through COVID, where we, we went on, you know, basically on steroids for printing money, both with the government sending out checks as well as the Federal Reserve. If the Fed is serious about raising rates and pulling back on that, there has to be some sort of unwind. You can't have asset prices that got inflated as much as they did, including with crypto, continue to go up. And then at the same time, the Fed is just sucking liquidity out of the system. So ultimately, you know, we've had a recent bounce in the stock market. It's been amazing. I look at it kind of like a bear market rally, where ultimately I think we're going to turn back down and head back into a longer term trend for the S&P 500. With crypto, crypto's also had a big move, but it's still inside of a bearish flag pattern on the daily chart. Bearish flags being kind of a sideways, slightly angled to the upside movement that, again, probabilities dictate will have another move to the downside. So... The big case on crypto is, as much as I like it long term, there's so much junk in the crypto markets right now. You know, you have meme coins that were created as as junk uh, or as, as kind of jokes that have market caps of $50 billion. I mean, a lot of this type of stuff needs to be washed out of the crypto market. I think, again, there's a huge place for crypto in the future, but you need that dot .com style washout that we saw in like the 2000s. And then I think the best of breed will rise of Bitcoin and Ethereum, maybe Solana, some of those other ones.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. And it's quite hilarious. I mean, you see two good days in the market and all of a sudden my YouTube feed is full of the bull market is back and everything. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's great to get your kind of sober assessment on things. So turning to commodities then, what is standing out big picture? I mean, uh, there's the metals, there's agriculture, I guess. Is anything sort of standing out to you before we focus on the metals?
1: You know, I, I've been a, a, a big caller of oil pulling back. We've seen oil go as high as 120 to 130 dollars. We saw Goldman Sachs saying it could go to 200. We saw, I mean, so many people out there talking the 200 level. I never saw that, you know. And the reason I didn't see that is because if you look at the demand destruction that was being caused by 120 to 130 dollars oil with the gasoline prices, I mean, people were now changing their habits. So, you know, all of this was over 5 million barrels of oil out of Russia that basically gets sold to China at a discount anyway. So it's still in the system. But the big fear was again, you know, you're creating this kind of deficit of oil. But when you have oil prices going up as much as they have, there's demand destruction. And then if you add in higher interest rates, which inherently cause a slowdown in the economy here in the US and abroad, then you're going to be using even less oil. So I've been a big fan of kind of saying, hey, listen, Oil won't stay up at 120 to 130. I think today we briefly got below hundred dollars, which was good to see. But that's definitely been one that I've been keeping an eye on. You know, same thing with ag stocks, you know, commodities like that. They've had such big runs. I do think they're due for pullbacks. Stocks like Mosaic, I've seen that has had a big, big collapse in the last couple of days. Stocks like Alcoa went on a historic run. Those also are pulling back now and should pull back quite a bit more. Now, going to the commodities, I really continue to love gold and silver, Mm. although I'm a bigger fan of gold. And basically, the case for gold is that it's been kind of a forgotten asset with crypto. Crypto became kind of the dominant one. It got all the play. But really, when it comes down to it, crypto is still a risk asset. And that's why I still think it needs to correct at some point. Gold has always been the stable safety play. And if you look at the charts, and again, I'm going back to charts here, but... If you go back to the 1970s, which was the last time we had 8 10 12% inflation like we do now, the charts from the last 4 years are mimicking the 1970s charts almost identically, meaning that in 2018 gold was around 1100, by 2020, 2 years later, it ran up to 2000 and change. It then for 2 years from 2020 to 2022 went sideways to lower. Everyone said it was done. But if you look back in the 1970s, the same move happened between 1973 and 1975, an up move that matched 2018 to 2020. And then the same consolidation pattern from 75 to 77 as 20 to 22. And you know what happened in gold from 77 into the early 80s? It went from $100 an ounce to $900 an ounce. Now, again, I don't think we're going to see that type of X- occur in gold these days, because I do think eventually Bitcoin does get some market share from that. But I do think that there's major upside to potentially $5,000 an ounce over the next you know three years or so in gold. Interesting. And
0: you would say that the charts, the technical analysis on that would also support
1: that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just going back and, and a good technician is going to look at history, you know, I mean, really, any, anyone that wants to be proficient in anything in terms of predictions, you want to look back in history of when the same type of situations were occurring previously. And really, in terms of inflation, we have to go back to that 70s, mid 70s to 80s period. So I love doing that and going back. And then I discovered that the pattern formations, the exact moves were almost identical from that period to what we've seen over the last four years. And again, then you can extrapolate that, OK, well, if, 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 if the inflation is the same, if generally the same things are occurring, if the chart patterns are the same, then if A, B and C happen in the 70s, why wouldn't A, B, which already reflected the 70s, and then C should come along? So again, the idea that we should be ready for a big move up in gold, I think, is, is definitely on the horizon.
0: It feels like it's in the cards. And to your point about the market, the stock market and, and Bitcoin, as you say, you can't have things go up explode up you know for 18 months and then continue to like at a certain point you need a break you know no matter what is happening right okay so very interesting now your take on silver would you say it's the same or because it's more of an industrial metal more tied to the economy sounds like you're not as excited about silver as you are of gold but what do you think
1: Yes, so you're correct. Uh, you know, if I had to pick between the two, I would pick gold for sure because it's that purebred inflation hedge, store of safety. Silver just has that other side where it's like fifty percent store of safety, fifty percent kind of industrial side. And if if I'm listening to the Federal Reserve tell us, hey, we might be hiking rates fifty basis points for the next few meetings, and knowing historically when the Fed hikes, it causes a slowdown in the economy, and we're seeing all central banks basically hike rates. Then the idea would be is that you may see a slowdown or even possible recession over the next 12 to 18 months hit the US. If that's the case, I still think the inflation side helps silver perform well, but I don't think it performs quite as well in the near term as gold does because of that kind of potential demand destruction on the industrial side. So, again, you know, the best investors have diversified portfolios. I think that's important to say. So, again, having some silver, I do have some silver. But if I had to choose today which one, I'd be a buyer of gold.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And now, if you look at copper,
1: Dr. Copper, I mean, what's your take there? Yeah, I mean, copper is an interesting one, right? Because you, you have the same kind of thing where it's used in a lot of construction and wiring and all that other stuff. But then it's also a commodity as well. And I mean, I'm just flipped over. And again, I know people can't see, but I'm looking at charts as we discuss. And I do see a trend line on copper on the monthly chart that goes back to 2005, and if you connect it through the high in 2010, it looks like we just hit that same high recently. So what that could signal to me is a kind of a confirming signal for a slowdown in the global economy coming, right? In other words, that you're now hitting a major high that if you connect the two previous major highs in copper, you're now hitting that same trend line again and each time we hit this trend line, we see a pretty dramatic sell-off in copper. So, again, the only way that makes sense to me is if we extrapolate it out to the economy and say, okay, well, when does copper's price drop? And the answer is usually when there's a global slowdown, right? Less building, less doing that kind of thing. So, you know, to be honest, it looks, it looks a little bit more on the bearish side here. And, and copper's had an amazing run, by the way. From March of 2020, it was trading at uh, $2, and it, it hit $5, you know. So, I mean, that's been a massive run. But it does seem like it's looking for a pullback here, uh, maybe for even a year or two.
0: Very interesting. And it looks like it's almost like the, in a sense, commodities are almost the obvious trade. And, And maybe that's a problem, too, with that trade. It's like, oh, inflation, where do we go? Let's all go into commodities. And maybe it's just a little too obvious. Now, if we look at nickel, I don't know if you have a chart on nickel, but we had all that craziness with the LME in the last couple of weeks. And... We saw a pretty big spike there. Does that wreck all your charts (laughs) or what happens there? I mean, when I look at all the industrial metals in general and most metals, what I see is a big spike up, say, two or three weeks ago with the war and supply concerns. Let's just call it that, whatever that was. And then it looks like it's they're kind of maintaining their uptrend, but that they have pulled back from these kind of uh, parabolic moves. What is your take, say, on nickel and just uh, what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, so I actually agree with you absolutely. I think I think that you saw this crazy kind of you know black swan event with the invasion of Ukraine, and it caused some sort of squeeze. And you never know what really was the culprit there. There might have been hedge funds that were caught short, and they just had to cover and exit immediately uh, due to due to kind of margin calls, if you will. But that was a ridiculous move to the upside. And you're right in terms of a chartist, that makes it very tough to read. But I like your thought process where if you connect kind of a a channel around you know from 2020 kind of all the way through now but take out that big pop you're kind of still stuck in this longer term neutral to higher uptrend and i think that's likely where you kind of go back to and say okay you know that was kind of a crazy situation maybe like it's almost like the equivalent of a flash crash in the market in the stock market where it dives really quickly and then recovers almost right away you know it's just the opposite direction but i think that long term trend looks good on nickel And I would continue to think that it probably stays in that.
0: Interesting. Now, do you have a chart on uranium? And and do you have any thoughts on what's going on there? Because one of the interesting things about uranium, and I don't know if you remember this or help me if I'm remembering this wrong, but what I remember during the COVID crash around March 2020 was that uranium was one of the few assets that was actually performing well. Everything else was kind of not doing well. So it kind of has this... uh, I don't know if i'd call it counter cyclical but it has this kind of it has its own path to a certain degree not entirely what are your thoughts on uranium
1: yeah so the uranium chart is a very interesting one we know we had that major pop in like kind of late 2021 where where we saw this massive move up i'm looking at the etf the ura right now and the only thing that catches my eye is that it might be forming a head and shoulders pattern um, it's not a triggered pattern yet. It's just a pattern that you want to keep an eye on. And head and shoulders, for those of you that don't know, it's generally a bearish pattern, but only if it breaks the so-called neckline. And this hasn't done that yet. So it, you know, you can't really extrapolate quite to that negativity yet. But I do think it's interesting how how russia, the the invasion of Ru- of of Ukraine by Russia, has likely sped up the want for, you know, alternate forms of energy, right? I mean, every country now is like, wait a minute, you know, we can't be in the situation that Europe was in, where they're so reliant on another country to supply their energy needs. And I think it's interesting because I, I could see a much quicker adoption of alternate energies like solar, wind, and other forms, and possibly, and again, I say possibly because it's always tough to know with with um, nuclear, but it is possible that that you'll see more adoption of nuclear power as well. The only thing that makes me a little nervous about the the nuclear side of adoption is that when Russia did invade and and they took over those nuclear reactors, there was a lot of fear that there was going to be leakage or spills. And again, that that fear, that fear of nuclear is still out there. So it's a tricky one to know. But one thing I would just say about the charts, it's not a chart I would be long at this point. But if it pulled back enough, I would consider to maybe dabble in it a little bit.
0: And Final metal that I want to ask you about, and then just a couple of very quick general questions as we wrap up. Lithium has been pretty wild, and I'm kind of guilty of ignoring lithium a little too much, much to the chagrin of some of the listeners here. But tell us what's going on in lithium. I mean,
1: I looked at a couple of charts that I found, and I thought it was... Pretty extreme. What is your take there? Yeah, it has had a massive run, a lot of that due to, due to the electric EV revolution. To me, it's it's kind of like you, it, it's a chart that has gone up way too much for me to feel comfortable investing in at this point until we see some sort of flush out. I do think that as you get more electric vehicles on the road and it becomes more common, you'll see kind of the hype of lithium fade just a little bit. So for me, it would, it would need to pull back significantly. The chart pattern surprisingly kind of looks a little bit like the uranium chart with a potential head and shoulders pattern, which kind of makes sense mm-hmm. because both of them had major runs right around the same time. In fact, lithium topped out at the same time uranium topped out in November of 2021, which, by the way, was when Bitcoin topped out as well. So, I mean, not to say that that's all related in some way, but maybe it is from a psychological investor standpoint, right? You had these things that were very much hyped, Bitcoin, crypto was hyped at that point, you have uranium got very hyped, you had lithium with all the Tesla craziness and everything like that. And so, going back to kind of, you know, circling back to what we initially talked about, how charts generally show you human emotion. These charts, while somewhat unrelated, they are related in terms of psychology of the investor.
0: Yeah, this is super interesting, this grouping that you put together here, because what you might be suggesting here or what we might be approaching here is a potential collapse of the speculative trade. You could almost argue that's a profile. The person that's buying uranium and and Bitcoin and lithium, they're out to get the 10x, get rich quick. And yep. perhaps we are on the verge of the collapse. And to your point about we need the washout, say in crypto.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what I think is going to happen. And it's it's gonna be brutal. I mean, there's there's a lot of people. I mean, I went through it in my, in my very early trading career when the dot coms kind of collapsed, but I think it's important for, for investors to know that it's it's very Darwinian in that sense that You know, if you want the best quality cryptos to survive and thrive, you have to get rid of all the junk out there. And there's now over 15,000 cryptocurrencies, and I I can't even name more than 20 of these, you know, and I don't even know what the other 14,000 in, you know, whatever's are being used for. There is just so much froth in it, the NFT world, you know, you know, it, it blows my mind how these bored apes are going for the prices as NFTs. I mean, all they are are bored apes, like literally apes that have a bored look on their face and they're going for these ridiculous sums of money so so similar to past bubbles including the the dot coms where you had these dot com companies that were basically run out of their parents garage you know by a couple guys and somehow they got you know 50 million dollar valuations 100 million or more and it was just incredible and it wasn't feasible to see that continue amazon was during this period and amazon went from 112 dollars a share to 6 dollars And now it's at 3500 right? So, I mean, the thesis for why Bitcoin will survive is because we do need a digital gold. I do love the idea that Bitcoin cannot be printed into oblivion. But at the same time, you still need a washout first. Get rid of the junk. Let the strongest essentially survive.
0: I got to sell my NFTs pronto here. Uh, Okay, so... (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, I say half joking. So very quick, couple of final questions here. So in the last three months, we've seen a lot. It's been a very choppy year. Is there anything that would make you consider changing your approach to investing just in the last three months? Have you evolved, let's say, or are you pretty much like, no, I'm very comfortable with how things are playing out in a sense?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing, a good investor or a good trader is always evolving in that. You always find new things in the market that give you a slight additional edge, and there's always things like you know that that make you be a little bit more cautious. You know, as you build wealth, you take generally less risk. Um, one of the biggest changes I've made in my investing strategy is, in my early years, I would buy my full position at a technical level, and I'd say, okay, well, this is a great technical level. I want to get in because I want to make maximum money when it bounces. Let's say when this stock bounces up. I learned over time that a lot of times levels get pierced and it might go to the next level. And so if I buy a smaller amount, then I can average in, I can dollar cost average to my full amount as it comes lower and it takes out the risk of being all in at one particular price. So whether you're buying gold or uranium or any of these things, you know, imagine if you have a lot of, you know, fuel left in the tank to kind of add when it goes lower, as long as your thesis remains good, the technicals will give you that bounce eventually. And again, your dollar cost average will be much lower. The risk is lower by doing that. And therefore, when it does bounce, you get in the money much faster as well. So, I mean, you're absolutely always evolving. And I, and I can't stress, you know, in newer investors, they wanna make millions right away. I wanted to do that too, by the way, when I started investing and I lost, I continually lost, like I blew up my accounts, right? And it wasn't until I started to think about investing as a marathon, as something you do for the long term to get wealthy versus doing it for a month to get wealthy. It's about a long-term batting average, uh, singles and doubles hitter, right? In baseball, to use a baseball analogy, the home run hitters strike out. I don't want to be a home run hitter in in investing. I want to be singles and doubles, high percentage.
0: Yeah, that's profound. And, you know, things going down, if you have cash on the side, things going down, It's this could be a brilliant year for you. It's kind of a brilliant year to accumulate if you, if you are well-prepared for it.
1: 100%. Right. And yeah, I couldn't agree. Great. I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Is like you know, people don't want to have cash on the sidelines because they're like, oh well, I'm not going to make money if this goes this. But people underestimate how having it on the sidelines when a great situation arises can be unbelievably profitable. So that is a great point to make. Excellent. And
0: final question. And I appreciate all the time you've given us today, Gareth. Just on this predicting the future a little bit. So it seems to me like everything you've said in the charts seems to point to a recession that's coming up. Do the charts say anything about the war in, in your view?
1: Yeah, I, as of now, I, I, I it may say something about it. I haven't discovered it yet. I do think that oil coming down obviously could be signaling that maybe there's some sort of resolution on the horizon. But I, I keep on coming back to the the fact that unless vladimir putin's not in office anymore then a lot of these sanctions are not going to get lifted anyways and i think that's that's the bigger issue because now you have that supply you know disruption that's causing a lot of more additional inflation so so at least in terms of the war it's a little tough to know for sure i honestly was i was even surprised the war happened in the beginning because i in my head i'm like you know you know you'd think that we learned from Afghanistan and various others you know and, and to go into a country the size of Ukraine just didn't make sense to me and I do think Vladimir Putin's finding that out now but you know when it all comes down to it I do think there's a recession on the horizon and it's going to be fascinating to watch and see how the Fed handles that all right they can't again print the same amount of money to get us out of it so how what tools do they have left to stimulate an economy when you have inflation, even if inflation pulls back to 5 or 6%, you still can't print the same way you did when inflation was 2 or 1%. Does that mean we get stuck in a longer-term recession? That's my fear, and again, I'm a cycles guy too, and to know that you know we're coming up to the 100-year cycle, well, still about seven years away from 1929, 1930, and the Great Depression, it does make me nervous that there could be something on the horizon that can't be fixed, and we have to take our medicine at that point as a country.
0: Yeah, that again, another profound point. Politically, it's untenable for them to print right now with inflation going off the chart. Well, Gareth Soloway, chief marketing strategist at InTheMoneyStocks.com. Thank you so much for joining us and join us once again.
1: Yes, I would be honored to. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed that edition of the Northern Miner podcast. We're very happy to have Gareth Soloway join us. And we like to feature a little bit of everything over here, including the technical analysts. So don't forget, we have a another Mining Legends speaker series coming up on June 8th in Toronto. Tickets sold out last time. So just go to events.northernminer.com and you can pick up a ticket and it's an all day event. It goes from 10.30 a.m. to three with Pierre Lasson, chairman and CEO of Firelight Investments. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple podcast directory. Share it with your friends. Until next week, take care.